Hi there, it's Ed here with a short message before we start the pod this week. Did you know that our most informed investors get insights, articles and investment ideas from Tom, me and the team sent directly to them via email and it is completely free. You can join them. Just subscribe at fidelity.co.uk slash newsletters. Hello and welcome to The Personal Investor. I'm Ed Monk. Today on the show, it's our quarterly investment outlook special where we put your questions to the Outlook's author, Tom Stevenson. Recession, cash and hopes of a recovery in investment markets all featured high in the thoughts of Fidelity investors this time around. And that is our focus today. If you enjoy the show, please rate us, share us or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Each quarter, Fidelity publishes its investment outlook, a snapshot of the market's landscape that rounds up the issues on the minds of investors. An invaluable part of that is the questions that we invite you to submit to us, and in particular to the Outlook's author, Tom Stevenson. Tom and I have answered some of those questions in a video special that accompanies the Outlook. You can find that, as well as the Outlook itself, at the Markets and Insights section of our website at fidelity.co.uk. The podcast this week takes on even more of those questions, and Tom is here with me to do that. Tom, uh, welcome along. Um, Can we have a word... First of all, on the on the past few months in markets, the last time we did one of these on the pod was back in July. Um, it sort of feels like markets have been in a bit of a holding pattern since then. A lot, a lot of the issues that were around at the start of the summer are around at the end of it. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, Ed. The stock market uh, has really moved sideways over the the, the last three months. So if you go back a year, um, the, the, the market was pretty low last October and we had a good run um, uh, in, into the year end and for the first sort of four or five months of this year. And really over the summer, things have drifted. I think what's happened uh, in particular is that um, uh, interest rates um, have pushed high. Uh, the expectation has been that they will remain higher for longer. And I think that that, that optimism uh, that we had at the beginning of the year that we were coming to the peak of the interest rate cycle and that um, uh, the, the cost of borrowing was going to fall in the second half of this year has been pushed back uh, to next year. And that's that's sort of given the market pause for thought. Uh, yeah, and it's delicately balanced, isn't it? Because you, you almost see uh, as the news changes and these expectations for interest rates change subtly, the market changes as well. It, it's waiting to see what the trajectory for interest rates is going to be and for economic growth. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the most important uh, things that people are watching at the moment are inflation uh, and growth and how that feeds into the outlook uh, for, for companies. So, uh, you know, the expectation is that after a year or so of um, uh, declining earnings, that, that earnings are going to pick up uh, over the next two years. The expectation also is that inflation is going to come down and that interest rates are going to come down. But we don't know yet. We don't yet know what the full impact of the last 18 months of much tighter monetary policy is going to be on the state of the economy and how that's going to feed through into company profits. Great. Well, let's get on with our questions because uh, a lot of those issues are addressed, I'm sure, in your answers to them. Um, The first question, Tom, is this on exactly that topic. Do you think interest rates will remain at elevated levels in 2024? And will there be recession in the UK and USA in 2024? Because if the answer is yes, 
won't we have another awful year in world stock markets due to money being put in cash for a decent return at no risk? So what do you make of that? Right. Quite, well, okay. Quite a lot of different angles there. And I think the, 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 the key part of answering that question is, is are we going to go into a recession or not? Mm. Because that will really determine all the other things. If, if we do head into a recession, then I think that this whole story about interest rates staying higher for longer you know, will be undermined by that. Because uh, if we go into recession, I think interest rates will, will, will start coming down. The, the, there was an interesting point in that question about, um, well, does this mean that we'll have another bad year in the markets? And the answer is not necessarily, because I think it's it's very tempting to look at what's happening in the headlines with you know economic growth and inflation and all those things that we watch, and to think that there'll be an, an immediate response in the markets. But mm-hmm. but stock markets, as we know, are forward-looking uh, things. They they anticipate the future, and you know you might be in the middle of a downturn. You might be heading into a recession, but the market is already looking beyond that. So yeah. I think that that's an important point to 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 recognise that um, you know we may already have had the market impact by the time the event actually happens. Yeah, they're sort of they're at cross purposes these two things, aren't they? Because interest rates remaining elevated in 2024. Well, yes, that is an expe- the expectation of some, but that's because recession or certainly slower growth is not arriving in the way that is expected so actually the growth side of that equation is stronger even if the high rate side is is less advantageous but as you say if there's a recession then that equation changes yes and and recession has not come along um as as many people did expect i mean the 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 expectation which was not unreasonable was that if you if you crank up interest rates from essentially zero to um, their highest level since before the financial crisis, which is quite a long time ago now, then there's going to be a knock-on impact on the economy. hasn't quite happened yet, and there are a number of reasons for that. There are a number of reasons why the economy is less interest rate sensitive than maybe it was in the past, and that's to do with things like fixed-rate mortgages, um, to do with companies having refinanced uh, their loans during the pandemic when interest rates were very low. So although interest rates have risen a lot, the actual rate of interest that companies and households are paying is sometimes quite different from that. Mm. But in due course, there will be a catch up. And as we've seen with with the mortgage market, you know, more and more people roll off um, low interest rate mortgages onto higher interest rate mortgages. And that is going to have an impact. So I think that the, 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 the question... Uh, it's not so much about is there going to be an economic downturn, it's what's the timing of that economic downturn. And I think that we will get a slowdown next year. Whether that actually translates into a full-blown recession is another question. Yeah, economies are very good uh, at sort of tiptoeing their way through and avoiding that technical Mm. recession, aren't they? And actually, just finally on this question, we spoke uh, on, on a video with which is also answering questions from from uh, investors and a very similar one uh, in which we we discussed the the excess savings built up during the pandemic, which has given households a bit of a buffer now that borrowing costs are higher, energy costs are higher, all that stuff. Um, and so, as you say, there might be a delayed effect of all this and those interest rate rises might be biting, but not as quickly as they normally would do. Yes, I think that's another factor I- explaining why the economy has been more resilient than, than you might have thought, because people 
did build up savings during the pandemic when you know they were not able to go out and and you know if they were lucky enough to still be working which many people were of course they were spending less and they built up savings those savings are being progressively run down and at some point you know we're going to be back to where we were before the pandemic in terms of levels of savings uh, and i think that's when the interest rate hikes and the more higher mortgage rates in particular are really going to bite Okay, well, let's move on for now, Tom. And the next question is this. What is the point of diversification? The traditional diversifier from equities has been bonds, but they are performing terribly. Alternatives such as gold, metals, infrastructure, absolute return funds, they've also performed badly. Why not just simply buy an equities tracker and keep the rest in cash and money markets? So, abandoning bonds. Well, yes. And I think, so the the the, the the first part of the question was, what's the point of diversification? Well, the point of diversification is that we don't know what the future holds. Um, and um, and holding a diversified portfolio provides you with a smoother ride because different asset classes will, uh, and different geographical regions, for example, uh, within the stock market will perform in different ways at different points in, in the cycle. So that's why we diversify, because we don't have a crystal ball. Now, the, the question is right that uh, bonds have performed badly uh, over the last couple of years. And the reason for that is that uh, interest rates have pushed further uh, and they have stayed higher for longer than anyone expected. And the expectation is that they will stay higher for longer. That's a really bad combination of uh, circumstances for, for, for bond investors. But at some point, that process, that cycle mm. is going to come to an end and uh, interest rates will peak and they will start to fall again, especially if we head into a recession, as we've discussed. Um, and at that point, bonds will look a more, much more interesting investment. And if we are heading into a recession, it's entirely possible that the stock market will do less well. So I think that there are going to be years when um, this balance between bonds and equities doesn't work. Uh, they, they don't offset each other. They both move in the same direction. Uh, but I think that's quite unusual. And I think that we're more likely in any given year, you're more likely to have the two working uh, in opposition to each other. Yeah. And, and I guess the reality for a lot of people is that they, they may now see a case for holding cash rather than bonds. But probably the reality is that they've they've seen losses on bonds. And so to sell now and to abandon that position means you're going to lock in the loss, doesn't it? It's just bad sort of investing practice. Yeah, absolutely. And there is, I mean, I can, I understand the case for cash. You know, you can now with interest rates much higher, you can, you can, you can earn an apparently attractive income with apparently very little risk. Um, there is still a risk holding cash, though. There's an inflation risk that that, that mm -hmm. the return on your cash won't won't match inflation. There's also the risk that as and when interest rates come down, so too will the returns on cash. It's a different story with bonds because as interest rates come down, um, bonds will probably perform quite strongly because um, bond yields and bond prices move in the opposite direction yeah. to each other. Um, and actually, uh, falling interest rate environment is very is a very good environment for bonds. So I think to, to your point there about not ducking out, you know, just because you've historically recently had losses is absolutely right, because very often you do that. Uh, you, you look at your losses, you, you, you panic a bit and you bail out just at the wrong time. Okay. Okay. Well, let's move on for now, Tom. Um, the next question is a, a, a more technical one, I think. It says, uh, would I be able to move my ISAs into a SIP, thereby avoiding IHT? Lots of acronyms. 
Mm. Um, <laughs> so ISIS versus SIPs and IHT, what are the considerations? Yeah, so I mean, uh, yeah, the answer is yes, you can move your ISA into uh, into uh, a SIP. Um, and that, of course, is one of the advantages of ISIS, actually, is the flexibility of being able to put money in and take mm. money uh, out of, uh, of an ISA. Um, and the treatment of uh, inheritance tax, for that is what the uh, acronym stands for, yep. is different for, for, for SIPs uh, and ISAs. My feeling on this is that, um, uh, is that um, an investor can and should hold both um, ISAs and, and SIPs. Yeah. They work in different ways. Their tax treatment is different. You get tax benefit up front or at the back end, depending on which you choose. And, and there's no reason that it's not an either or question yeah I, well, a couple of things occurred to me from this question I mean, first of all it's, it's a bit difficult to answer it specifically because you don't know the wider circumstances of this person because if avoiding IHT is their is their main primary um overriding ambition with their with their financial planning then then yes that might be the most sensible thing to do but it's also true to say having money held in ISAs is a really potentially very valuable thing because you can you can grow your money free of, of capital gains, which is true of, of pension money, but pension money will be taxed, broadly speaking, at income tax levels on the way out, um, whereas ISA money is is not. Um, it's already been taxed, mm -hmm. is true to say. Um, and in terms of paying money into a SIP, you will be restricted on what you can do. It sounds like this person is a little closer to retirement than they are at the start of their career. They may even be in retirement. Um, if that's the case, then they may face restrictions, the money purchase annual allowance, which which limits what they can pay into um, a maximum of £10,000 or whatever they earn. Um, if, if they are working then and they haven't accessed taxable money from a pension, then they might be able to pay in more, up to £60,000 a year of annual allowance, but only if they earn that amount as well. So lot, lots of considerations. If, if, if they've got significant and complex amounts of wealth then advice can help here can't mm. it absolutely i i i think uh, at various times in your life and depending on how much um uh, money you have then absolutely advice is absolutely worth worth seeking out and and these are quite complex questions i mean the 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 the, the balance um or how you use different tax advantage vehicles like ISAs and sips is not is not particularly simple so absolutely seek out advice Okay, well, let's move on for now, Tom. And the next question is this. My partner and I are retired, but have yet to draw down any of our DC pensions. Over the last two years, the performance of all our pensions has been between poor and terrible. I hear the blame is placed on either equities or guilt. What needs to happen in the financial markets for these pension funds to recover their losses? Well... Yeah, well, probably different things need to happen for um, for the bonds and the equities to, mm -hmm. to, to perform. I mean, we talked about the diversification benefits of them. I mean, I think if you look at the equity uh, markets... Um, uh, so, so what what determines the future direction of uh, of um, e equity market shares? Um, it's the it's growth on the one hand. So we need to see um, um, company profits growing and earnings growing. Now the expectations on that front are pretty positive. Uh, we've had a difficult year of of slightly modestly declining um, company profits, but the forecasts for 2024 and 2025 are actually pretty strong at the moment. So that's one part of the equation. The other part of the equation, though, is is how much you're paying uh, for those for those shares, and and that varies quite significantly between 
different markets. So, for example, the US stock market is 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 pretty highly valued by historic standards at the moment, and it's certainly highly valued relative to some other markets. So, the UK, for example, is notably cheap at the moment. The Chinese stock market is notably cheap. Now, there may be good reasons for that, um, but they are certainly cheap. The Japanese market. Um, sit somewhere in between. So I think it's a combination of, um, uh, you know, looking for markets which are cheaply valued and looking for, for where, the, where the growth is going. Now, bonds, different story altogether. Bonds do well uh, in, a, in a falling interest rate environment. So almost the opposite case. With, with, with equities, you want the economy to be growing and company profits to be growing. With bonds, you actually um, are looking for a, a, a gloomier prognosis. You're actually looking for interest rates to be falling. And that mm. would tend to happen when we were heading into an economic slowdown. I mean, is there a potential Goldilocks scenario here where you get... Uh you get the you know the equity market gets enough of what it needs and the bond market gets enough of what it needs to see a recovery in both these assets after all they both fell last year in tandem so can the can the reverse happen yes i i mean i think that is the golden ox scenario that um that the, that what central banks have managed to achieve is to is to get on top of inflation sufficiently um that um uh the economy is still growing profits are still growing but they are able to take their foot off the brakes, if you like, by easing back on interest rates. That would be that would be the best outcome for investors. OK, OK, well, let's move on, Tom. Um, uh, now, Tom, le- never let it be said that we duck the difficult questions. Um, and uh, with that in mind, the next question is this. Why are the ISAs that my wife and I have with Fidelity performing so badly? I have other ISAs with Virgin Money and with Nutmeg, which have performed well, but our investments with you have flatlined. What do you have to say, Tom? <laughs> well, um, well, the first thing I'd say is I'm sorry to hear it. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the second thing I would say is to just remember that, you know, an, an ISA is essentially a, a, a package. It's a wrapper for underlying investments. And the performance of those uh, investments will be determined not by uh, the platform on which they are held or yeah. the wrapper in which they are held, uh, but it will be determined by um, the, the, the choice of investment. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, if you're going to make comparisons between different providers, then it's important that you're comparing apples with apples. Yeah. And it's entirely likely that, that, that we're looking at different underlying investments here. Yeah, that, that could be the case. I mean, it is true to say that, that different platforms have different levels of pricing and that does ultimately affect your overall overall return um different investments will have different uh charges as well but as you say really um if it's a, if if the if, if the investments underneath all of that are the same then they should be broadly similar i, I wanted to raise a point here about um was something that can happen if, if you're not that familiar with investments it can it can be confusing but the way online investment platforms work and how they show you your return it may make a difference if you are comparing assets which have sat statically on a platform without you contributing to them that might look very different from assets that you continue to contribute to even if the investments you're making are basically the same and the market conditions are the same the fact that you continue to contribute means that you might get a very different sort of performance or percentage gain figure on each version because 
well, you will have bought assets at lower prices if you continue to invest regularly, particularly in a market that we've just seen, really, which has been sort of recovering. Mm. Um, so you really need to understand what it is you're reading sort of underneath that headline return rate. Yeah. And an important point just to add to that is that that, that um, scenario will be different at different stages in your life. So when you're just starting out and you're contributing um, to, into your to your investments, then the contributions will probably be a very significant part of the overall return that you're well, achieving. Yes. Yeah. Now, if 30 years later, when you're in your 50s, um, uh, it's entirely likely that the contributions that you're making are relatively insignificant in terms of the, the, the total return. So you need to bear that in mind as well. Okay, okay. Well, let's move on, Tom. Um, and the next question is, Mr. Stevenson, my retirement portfolio had an excess had a value in excess of £58,000 in July 2021. I have not sold any of the capital and now it has a value of £45,000. Should I hold tight and hope that I live long enough for a financial recovery or sell now before I lose the entire fund? So is their gloom justified? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, first of all, the, I, I just make the point about the timing uh, of uh, the start and end points of this um, analysis, because, you know, 2021 uh, represented um, the sort of high point of the of the of the post pandemic um, recovery uh, in, yeah. in stock markets. I mean, stock markets rallied very strongly in 2020 and again in, in 2021. Now, if you look at the sort of headline uh, I index figures, you know, such as the S&P 500 or, or the FTSE 100, um, th they've actually been quite skewed by the performance of a handful of shares, in particular, the, the US uh, index, the S&P 500, really been driven by, you know, half a dozen or so um, uh, mainly technology shares, which have done very well. If you scratch beneath the surface and look at what's happened to many other um, stocks um, in in the market over that period, they've not done particularly uh, yeah. well. And indeed, the smaller companies have actually been falling since then. So uh, I'm afraid I'm not wholly surprised that a, that a portfolio would have declined over that period because the starting point was was you know a pretty high starting point yeah i mean my maths isn't quite good enough to do the percentage change in my head but that's going to be 20 25 of a fall mm. um and, and you haven't mentioned uh, bonds there which may well have been part of their retirement portfolio as mm. well um it's really really painful those kind of loss but they've said well, you know should i sell before i lose the entire funds mm. Th that that's something that Markets can go up and down, but that's something that really is uh, very unlikely to happen, that you're going to lose all your money. I think that's a, a question like that really underlines to me the, the the different perception that we all have. And I'm not having to go at the, the question here, but we all have this, the different perception we have uh, of losses and, and gains, mm. because losses really feel like the end of the world. Mm. Whereas the gains, and this this investor may have seen huge gains in the in the period immediately before this, mm. they just don't hit home as hard, do they? And yeah. uh, and and it's easy to get very very gloomy when you have these difficult periods. I think you're going to lose the lot. But yeah, it absolutely. Happens. And and you know, I mean, this in in behavioural finance, you know, there's a word for this, two words: loss aversion. You know, we do we do treat a twenty five percent loss very differently from how we treat a 25% gain. I mean, you know, we, you make 25% on your investments and you think, well, 
that's what markets are supposed to do. And then, mm. but you don't have that sort of visceral pain of, of, of losing money. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right that we need to think about these investments in the long term. You know, we need to think about what, what, are, what, what are our goals? What's our time scale here? And, and just sit back and, 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 and ride the journey to, to get there. Because, you know, if we, if, we, if we worry too much about short-term fluctuations, that is the nature of stock markets. That's the price that we pay for the long-term outperformance of stock markets, is that in the short term, they can be quite volatile. Yeah, and, and this touches on so many of the things that we've spoken about today, some of the issues that we're, we're talking about in general. Um, you know, should you move into cash? Should you shun bonds? All these things. Actually, when people invest at the outset, they want, if they're realistic and they're pragmatic, what they want is that six, seven, eight percent annualized return that markets over history have given them. And they build their financial plans on that. They'll probably get it if they stick the course. Mm. They probably will. What, you know, makes it less likely to happen is... Is, is, is sort of jumping in and out and messing around in periods like this, doesn't it? I mean, no one knows what's going to happen, but um, it's th- these are the hard yards, aren't they, when in, in investing? And actually, if you want, you know, you have a, a 20% get plus year, that isn't the norm, but the 20% fall year isn't the norm. What mm-hmm. you want is the average annualized return, and you've got to get all of it to get that yeah and and to to get that you have to live with the 25 percent losses just as you have to enjoy the 25 percent gains and not um uh, think that you're super clever or a great investor when you get those 25 percent gains that's just part of the course sometimes it goes up a lot sometimes it goes down a lot but as you're right it's focus on that average over time and just stick with it yeah okay well um let's move on for now tom we've got a few more to get through uh central banks tom are Central banks often ease monetary policy too much, stoking up excess market returns, and then they overdo their corrective policy phases. How deep will the market's correction be this cycle? Will long-term average market returns be able to beat inflation over the next five to ten years? Well, several different questions um, tied up in there. I mean, the the first point about central banks is absolutely uh, true. It's an extremely difficult job. Uh, Interest rates are a very blunt tool. And um, and the the, the people wielding that that tool, the central banks, uh, are doing it blind, essentially. They don't know what the impact is going to be because there is always a lag between making changes to monetary policy and the actual economic impact. So because of that, that's why you get these pendulum swings of, you know, too aggressive um, tightening, uh, too too much easing. Um, and that, I'm afraid, is, is, the, is the nature of it. That's the challenge for central banks to manage that. Um, uh, and where we are at the moment in the cycle is that um, central banks have tightened a lot. Mm. They're now pausing, um, broadly speaking, to see what the impact is going to be. But we don't know. We don't know whether the last 18 months of rate rises are going to lead to a recession or not until un- until we get there. So there's another part of the question about um, stock markets and inflation. You know, historically, um, uh, stock markets have um, uh, beaten inflation. And, you know, there is no reason to... To, to think that that won't continue to be the case. When you invest in the stock market, you are investing in real assets, um, which um, uh, can benefit from rising prices. It, it increases the revenues of the companies um, earning the profits. Um, so, And that's, that's one of the reasons why stock market investments have tended to outperform uh, inflation or at least keep pace with inflation. See no reason why in the long run, 
that shouldn't be the case. There yeah. will be times along the way when inflation is high and stock markets are doing badly. Yeah, of course, of course. I think that's just a, another way of asking the same question, isn't it? Sort of, mm. What's going to happen and can I beat inflation? That's a difficult one to, to have a very short answer about. Yeah. Indeed. Okay, well, let's move on, Tom. Uh, the penultimate question. Where do you see actively managed funds struggling over the next half year compared to passively managed funds? A very specific time frame, so you can widen that out if you want. <laughs> yeah. But basically, active versus passive What's that uh, that dynamic at the moment? Well, it's been a particular issue in in recent years because the market has been driven so much by a very small subset of companies. Um, the the returns of uh, the the S and P five hundred, for example, have been you know very largely um, a result of the performance of just half a dozen, six or seven companies. We call them the magnificent seven. These big tech stocks like Amazon and uh, and Apple. The problem is that they are so big, they dominate the market to such an extent that um, most actively managed funds will not hold those stocks in the proportion that they represent in the, in, in the market. Yeah. Because you would have to have, you know, almost 30% of your fund in those seven stocks for you to do that. So the reality is that most actively managed funds, which are looking for value, they're not going to be buying the most expensive companies in the market for that reason um, are going to be uh, underweight those big stocks and therefore by definition they're going to underperform the market if that's the driver of performance which mm. it has been so it's been a difficult time for for um, actively managed funds now if we move to more of a value-driven market um, it's entirely possible that the active approach will have you know, it's moment in the sun and do do much better. Um, it's very difficult to predict a, a ahead of time. I always think that there's an argument for holding both passive and and active funds. They 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 they, they work in a different way. They have different um, uh, merits. You know, passive funds are cheap, yeah, and you know what you're going to get in terms of market performance. Actively managed funds are more unpredictable, more expensive, but when they work. They really work. Yeah, and uh, yeah, like you say, it's a, it's it sort of maps onto the the value versus growth argument in the way that you've described. You need a bit of value uh, appreciation, really, for active to in general do better. I th I think kind of active versus passive. It's one of those questions around again your your sort of personal attitude to losses. Are you the sort of person that's going to be really annoyed if you underperform the market? Mm. Or are you the person that says, well, I'm happy to do that from time to time because what I want is to actually do much better than what the market does because I want those occasions when I've you know, beaten it by 5% or 10%, in which case the active can be worth the risk and the extra cost that, that comes along with it as well. Mm. You need to decide those things almost before you decide, well, you know, active's the best way to invest in one thing or the other. Mm. Are you prepared for what each one means? Mm. And I think that's why I say, you know, for many people, for most investors, probably a, a mixture of the two make, makes sense. Okay. Uh, the final question today, Tom, is this. I am newly widowed and retire with my state pension in two years' time. When the stock market picks up, should I move my own stocks and shares ISA into cash? where the interest rates are better, and my other investments into fixed cash savings. I will inherit my husband's stocks and shares ISA, and I cannot afford to have so much money tied up in investments which are fluctuating so wildly. I do not have a private pension to fall back on. Um, so really a, a, a question again around, around cash versus the stock market uh, and how you organise what sound like some quite complicated finances. 
I think I think the the question that we're addressing here is one of risk appetite, really. I mean, it it, it sounds like uh, the, the the questioner is is concerned about the level of risks which in in um, her portfolio, which which might have made sense um, uh, in years gone by, and maybe if only for psychological reasons, makes less sense now. Mm. I think that it sounds to me like this would be a, a sensible moment to get some advice. Uh, on 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 how to manage a portfolio going forward um, for one person um, um, at, at a time of life when maybe risk there's less tolerance for risk. Yeah, absolutely. Because what that advice will 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 do, especially two years out from retirement or two years out from state pension age, at least, um, it, it will look at essential spending and and what you actually need, mm. and then it will if this is what you want and it sounds like the questioner does want this it will be able to um secure that spending in with guaranteed income probably from an Mm -hmm. annuity it will look at what else you have and it may well be that you can achieve that whilst then having the cash on hand that you need and and the sort of the security of that income to actually take some investment risk where potentially you know that could be in your in your favor down the line it's a, it's a funny thing, attitude risk, isn't it? If you, if you, the more you know, and the more you sort of organise your finances to deal with it, actually, often more, the more comfortable people are with investment risk. Yeah, absolutely. And these things are not either or black and white. You know, I think that if you secure your base level of um, necessary spending then your attitude to risk in the rest of your portfolio will be totally different. Yeah. You'll be much more relaxed about it if you know that if the you're worst the comes bills. to the worst, yeah. you're going to pay the bills. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Okay, well, look, Tom, we've answered absolutely loads of those questions now, uh, and I'm afraid that is all the time we have. So thanks an awful lot for coming in. Um, I will remind listeners that the investment outlook itself is available to read at the Markets and Insights section at fidelity.co.uk. There's also a series of videos recorded by Tom that focus on each of the main asset classes. And there's that Q&A video where we answered more of your questions as well. That is it for now. Thanks for listening. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. Investors should note that the views expressed may no longer be current and may have already been acted upon. This information is not a personal recommendation for any particular investment. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to one of Fidelity's advisors or an authorised financial advisor of your choice. Overseas investments will be affected by movements in currency exchange rates and investments in emerging markets can be more volatile volatile than other more developed markets. Reference to the specific securities should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell these securities and is included for the purposes of illustration only. Tax treatment depends on individual circumstances and all tax rules may change in the future. Withdrawals from a pension product may not be possible until you reach age 55, 57 from 2028. This podcast may not be reproduced or circulated without prior permission. No statements or representations made in this podcast are legally binding on Fidelity or the recipient. This podcast is meant only for UK residents and does not constitute an offer or a solicitation in any jurisdiction in which it may be unlawful to make such an offer or solicitation.